2: Welcome to episode 328 with my guest, Charlie King. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the mental illness happy hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. Uh, I'm not even, uh, I'm not even a nurse's aide. I've never even driven an ambulance. I was pre-med, and I am a hypochondriac, and I do like to Google. So that does count for something. But this is, uh, this is, this show is not meant to, to, oh, shut up, for the love of God. 45 seconds in, and I am already hating myself. (sighs) The website for this show is Who Gives a Fuck it's mentalpod.com mentalpod is also the twitter handle you can follow me at um what can i share with you uh oh we the votes are in and i finally am posting the 12 favorite episodes from 2016 i couldn't uh i couldn't cut it off at 10 because the next two were so fucking good i wanted people to uh to see those as well. So I picked uh top twelve. And uh if you go to the website, you'll see you'll figure it out. You're an adult. Or maybe you're a child and you're listening. You're a precocious child. Um, hey, here's something that could really help the podcast, because we always need more funding. You know, I cannot do this podcast without you guys. And donations are down, and I'm a little desperate. Um But then again, I'm a panicky person. My point being, here's a great way to help the podcast, even if you don't have any money. Um, Go to our homepage and you'll see a little Amazon link. Uh, If you're ever gonna shop at Amazon, click on that link and it doesn't cost you anything when you buy at at Amazon. Nothing is added to your price. In fact, what would be really great, click on that link and then bookmark it. And then every time you go shop at Amazon, just uh, enter through there, that does help. Um, wanted to give you an update on the, uh, the marshmallow diaries. I have not had any, uh, I have not e- eaten tablespoonfuls, uh, s- tablespoons full of marshmallow fluff, uh, out of the jar at four in the morning, right before I go to bed in, I think, like three weeks. And, uh, by the way, the wind is so strong tonight. It's weird. It, it, it seems to pick up uh on the days that I sit down to to do the podcast I would really like to make that all about me but I think it just might be a coincidence um yeah so uh no entries in the marshmallow diaries uh I have blocked Ben and Jerry's number uh been three weeks since that and the first couple of days I, there was just a real craving for sugar and uh, then I went to really bittersweet chocolate and I'm to the point now where I, I'm not even really craving that that much. Um, so I'm feeling good and I think this has to do with the thing that I've been working on my therapist with which is acknowledging my feelings because I used to acknowledge my feelings before. That's not true. There was a time when I wouldn't understand what I was feeling then there came to be a time when I would understand what I was feeling but I wouldn't sit with it and now I'm learning to acknowledge what I'm feeling and sit with it as long as it takes almost like a cop at your window when you've been pulled over you know just he's not going to be there forever or she's not going to be there forever just and um, and usually some type of catharsis happens, and I think that is related to uh, not binging on the sugar as much. And uh, I've mentioned before, I love my therapist. I found her through uh, betterhelp.com. They're one of our sponsors. I highly recommend them. If you want to check them out, go to betterhelp.com mental. I'll put a link uh, on this episode where, where you can, if you forget it. Uh, but go, yeah, go to betterhelp.com mental. Complete a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a uh, betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. You got to be over 18. I highly recommend it. And the thing that I like too is she will send me, um, messages throughout the, uh, the week, uh, saying, Hey, here's something to consider or, um, asking me a question, uh, about how's, how's this going or that going? And it's different than kind of any other, uh, therapy, uh, framework i've i've had before and i really i really like it as i've mentioned before i am leaving to go out of the country uh on monday super excited about it but also a little nervous because a lot of things out of your control when you go traveling and as much as i love seeing new places just i get anxious around uh Uh, planes and buses and am i going to make this connections that's the thing that stresses me out the the most um one of the things that i love about our digital age is if you get delayed you miss a flight whatever you have ways to keep yourself entertained and One of the ways that I enjoy doing that is with Audible. If you have never listened to an audiobook, you are really missing out. Um, I have a bunch loaded on my, uh, on my phone. I have Amy Poehler's Yes, Please, and an amazing one that I highly, highly recommend, which is called The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. And I'm not going to give too much of it away. Um, it traces the very beginning of the digital revolution to pretty much where we are today. It's by Walter Isaacson, who's an amazing, amazing author. And he researches so much about this book. There is, it It begins in the mid-1800s with a woman named Ada Lovelace, who was the daughter of of the the poet Lord Byron and she is credited with being the first computer programmer because she imagined how a computing machine they were analog back then could be used to represent things other than numbers or quantities it's amazing so he traces every single step along the way it's a brilliant book I highly recommend it but anyway uh, The Audible app is free, it works on iPhones, iPad, Android and Windows Phone and you can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. Also you own your book so you can access them anytime. Um, They have a great listen guarantee if you decide you don't like the book you choose, no worries. You could exchange it anytime you want for another title, no questions asked. So. If travel delays are wasting your time, buckle up and settle in while new ideas take off. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn your travel into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com mental to start now. Once again, that's audible.com mental. I want to read an awfulsome moment, and this was filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Vanilla Oreo. And her some moment, she writes, I am biracial, but I look white. The only person who validates my racial identity is my stalker.
0: I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people. And it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks.
1: I don't know how to let loose and just
0: be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die.
1: Stomach-clutching despair.
0: Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the act diet in fourth grade.
1: They told me I was wrong.
0: The secrecy is what
2: I'm here with my buddy, uh, Charlie King, who I've known for about 13 years. Yes, indeed. We um, we met at a support group. Um, you've been sober a while now? Like, what, 11 years? Two. Two. Two and some change. Oh, okay. I couldn't have been more wrong. I
1: got married, and uh, uh, it's just a long story. She was hiding the fact she was taking opiates, and I had a huge patch of arthritis on my low back, and tried one and you know most people would say i need to get a prescription first <laughs> not us No, not us i just
2: didn't have a mental defense so i had to start my time over one of the reasons i wanted to uh, talk to you is we've known each other over the years sometimes we don't see each other for uh, a number of months but when we do reconnect uh, i don't know i feel like there's always this um I don't know, this connection between the the two of us. Yeah. I've always been um I've always been drawn to people who uh can get vulnerable and be honest about what it is that they're struggling with. And early on you opened up to me about your life and about your struggles with using violence as a solution. Yes. Um what do you remember about that time period um it would have been the mid-2000s and you you i think we're still in the midst of occasionally you know somebody disrespecting you and you uh, getting into a fight and then being arrested
1: i i was um i felt hopeless i felt there was there was something i could not control and i would just snap and i felt like I was going to get locked away somewhere and okay. in gladiator school and never get the get the help that I needed. And what's the longest stint you've done in jail or prison? Um 45 days in jail. Mhm. Yeah. That was in 1982. But as as for my anger, uh, I always got away except for the last the last one and i did i think i did eight days in la county jail mm-hmm. for that
2: one and were these uh just men you'd never met before strangers yeah yeah well
1: one wasn't one was a domestic bo- on my wife uh-huh. which in which i pushed her out of the door and she, and she scraped her head on the doorway and i locked out and i, and I didn't know that she bumped her head and mm-hmm. she called the police and they had me face down on the carpet and took me away, so that was a domestic it was, everything I have ever done was is a misdemeanor because after one punch i I realized what I was doing, I said, "Oh my God, what am I doing this for and i always I stopped mm-hmm. so what determines whether it becomes a misdemeanor or a felony is the amount of damage you inflict on another person mm-hmm. if you just beat someone down and really hurt them, gr- injure them gravely, it's a felony. It's, it's a felony, felony battery. And so you've never had mm-hmm. a felony battery? No, it's always just been one punch, something like that. But the the anger and the and the craziness was always there. I mean, I was the guy who would get out of his car in the middle of traffic and go back to the other car and, and you know, mm-hmm. and get him to try to get him to come out or pound on the window and stuff. And I've actually had people that knew me that just happened to be at a car wash or something and, and yelled out, Charlie, what are you doing? And it's just snapped me out of it. I looked around and I was in the middle of the street going after this person in a car. And I just turned around and looked, looked around.
2: I said, Oh my God, I'm going to get back in my car now. And it just, he just snapped me out of it. So it's almost like you go into a, an altered state, like a a switch
1: flips can't control it or I couldn't control it and it was a
2: hopeless feeling hopeless because you had so much shame when you started opening up to me and i think that's one of the things that um a interested in interested me in you as a person but b also uh made me feel close to you because you were so gentle in your self-reflection and desire to change and it was such a contrast with uh you know, charlie is a a physically though you're not that tall you're uh he's a physically fit guy with tattoos all over his arms um and just that that contrast to me um was so it just always struck me as so complex it was
1: i'm not the, the kind of guy that likes to go on and on about himself i mean when i'm but I, I, it, I, this is about me, so I'm gonna go on a little bit about myself. And I was born a real sweet person who, who was naturally outgoing. And at the age of five, I would introduce myself to people and shake hands and speak right up and, and say, well, my, what a lovely house you have. And just, this I was just a little adult. You know, I, I, I went to a new neighborhood and at five years old and, and, 19. That would have been two, three, four, five, six. That would have been 1967. And I just walk up and down the neighborhood, knocking on doors, introducing myself as Charles King, and do you have someone my age I can play with? And I knocked on all these doors, and I finally knocked on the right one. And she said, "Yeah, I do." And she pushed him out, and uh, he was my age, and uh, we're still friends today. But the uh, the abuse, the 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 physical abuse, and uh, and my 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 vision of love what love is was so skewed and so distorted because um the people that bring you into the world if they're hitting you and then they're then they're pretending then they're acting like they're your friend and then they start hitting you again and they act like your friend your your vision of love is going to be very distorted
2: give me some examples uh
1: getting hit this was not uh beat up this was corporal punishment this was this was corporal punishment so it was very
2: uh but give me give me some examples you know <clears throat> uh, of things that you experienced being, um, kind of involved being that
1: taken down in a dark basement that was unfinished it didn't have it had studs it had like you know no walls just studs a dark scary basement and uh, being hit on the back of the legs with a broomstick, being beaten in the back of the legs with a broomstick and not really knowing why. And then coming back, coming up and crying on the couch. And, I mean, I can't imagine doing that to a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. You know, I, I just, I, I can't imagine doing that now. But that's what was, both parents were doing that. And mom had a riding crop, dad had a, a broomstick handle. And um, so when people that are supposed to love you are are doing that to you, your vision of love is skewed and so when I was nine my mother ceased to be able to be a mother and she went over the edge and she never got her sanity back she went over the edge and she was crying or she was catatonic or she was laughing or sitting there like I said she would be catatonic she wouldn't speak for weeks and she wasn't my mother anymore so after nine years old been
2: diagnosed with anything
1: schizophrenia depression and uh, people talk about depression and and, and i've experienced depression where you know you're depressed but this kind of depression was where you she couldn't talk it was more it was a huge depression so schizophrenic where she would talk to herself and hear things and, and thought god and people were telling her what to do and
2: was there no cure for that was there any desire on her part to get better or get help she was gone there was there was nothing left she was
1: just reduced to um a child and certainly couldn't be a mother but she tried yes there was yes she did try <clears throat> she tried to pull it together and she would uh, and i was angry as a as a seven year old and an eight year old I was angry, and I would send her to the store to buy me toys and she would come back and i'd say that 's not right. go back and get this and you know um she had no boundaries, she was just reduced to it like a child and so i was so you would angry. send her to the store right to buy me things because i was so i was just I was angry that she was not a mother, she had no boundaries, I had no discipline at all I, I was not disciplined
2: anymore she was there was so it went from you being beaten by her being to her not guiding you exactly. even badly guiding you no not guidance guiding
1: whatsoever. you so it was from getting you know hit getting corporal punishment all the time uh, to nothing to, to being ad- ignored completely ignored abandoned and Where uh, was your father? A workaholic always working and uh, soon after he, he left the state to start a company he was ambitious, and he wanted to uh, have his own company. So he left the state and started up this company and left me and my sister with my mom, who was very sick. So I had nothing. I had no parental guidance. No. And, and was your father aware of the severity of the situation? Uh, in the beginning, I'm sure he was. Uh, yeah, I think so. But he was driven. And uh, you know, I was born to two parents who had no right to have parents. They had no parenting skills whatsoever. To have um, kids, you mean? Yeah, they yeah. had no parenting skills. They didn't know yeah. what they were doing. They, they just knew how to inflict pain and, uh, scare you. And my friend, who I had knocked on his door and met him, he was my age, had two parents that had, were, had, um, had great parenting skills. His father was a, um, was a psychiatrist and his mother was studying psychology. And so they both had amazing parenting skills and they, the contrast was absolutely amazing. I would, I would come over to his house like a wild Indian foul mouthed and, and, and just, just wound up to the hilt. And his mother would say, Charlie, we don't talk that way here and say, say do you want to take off your coat you're going to get overheated because you're, you're a little you're you're going fast you're going too fast here
2: were you manic as a i kid? was
1: maybe a little bit yeah i was yeah. wound up really really wound up foul mouth had no uh no guidance
2: and um
1: and had you uh
2: become violent mm,
0: that yeah point?
1: there was there was schoolyard brawls and as a as a uh, fourth grader fourth and fifth grader i had fighting skills i had body blocks and I, I punch and kick i i yeah i had a lot of fights as
2: a young young gangster. would you generally start them what would what would set you off do you hmm. can you recall any to just kind of give us some more detail of can't the, just just no
1: i can't recall it's been so long but i remember uh Having some moves, having, definitely having real moves, fighting moves, you know, punching, going down to my knees, blocking someone, tripping them, um, getting on top and, you know, and.
2: What do you remember feeling when you would do that?
1: You know what, what happened was I would always make friends with the, with the people that I got in fights with. I would, a- afterwards? Mm-hmm, it was like over in a flash and I would, became friends with them. And, um, when I moved, my dad finally got the company started and I moved from Denver to Tulsa. I moved and it was in sixth grade. The biggest kid in the school didn't like me because I had red hair and I was a little quirky. I was, I was a little odd, but I had red hair. And so he didn't like me. He wanted to fight me. So my first day of school, the big football player, a big linebacker kid was, you know, punching his, punching his hands and his fists, looking at me across the classroom, you know, like it's going to be you and me after class. And when school let out, we went down the street and I remember jumping up in the air and punching him several times. As as a twelve year old, and he was the guy. He was huge, and for me, and I remember jumping up in the air and hitting him, and um, I won. It's because I had the heart, and uh, we became close friends. We became after that. We became we became very close.
2: Do you feel like you need to punch me for us to become closer? No, <laughs> no,
1: uh, um, <laughs> I. I, I uh, <laughs> I thought, and the same thing when i when I stopped using drugs and alcohol uh, as a way to medicate, after a few years went by uh this anger started coming up, and the the drugs and alcohol kept it in check. but once I got clean and sober, it started coming up and so here I was seven, eight, nine years sober, and getting into fights and
2: so give me um before we get into your uh drug years let um, 's go back to childhood and adolescence and give me some moments, some little vignettes uh that you think kind of paint a picture for the listener of who you were like, what your life was like, how you viewed the world, anything like that
1: well as a uh, youngster as is nine ten years old uh six seven eight nine ten, looking back. You know as a as a as a child, you have to just deal with what you 're given and in therapy, I was talking to a therapist, and she said, "Charlie, there's no way in the world you could have processed that stuff you know i've seen your mother go crazy and uh crying all the time or coming on to me or."
2: Um, what do you mean coming on you sexually
1: a little bit? Tell me I was cute and getting close to me and putting her arms around me and, you know, kissing my cheeks and telling me, you know, mm-hmm. and it just, it was, it was very that, creepy. That must've been really uncomfortable. It was very, but when that happened, I was actually a teenager. So I knew that she was insane and I, I knew but it was still, I still remember it. But, um, so having, trying to process that kind of stuff as a child, you can't, you can't process You just have to. Push it down. So I, I've spent a lot of time alone. I, I walked to the store alone. I walked up and down the neighborhoods at five years old alone. No, I don't. No, I don't see any five year olds doing that today. Um, So I had, I was born into crazy. I mean, my, my mother and sister were both had, didn't know how to show love. My father didn't know how to relate to me at all. So, you know, I didn't. My vision of love was was distorted. So later in life, I spent years, and I'm still doing it, getting women who, who aren't uh, emotionally available, just like my mother and my sister and my father. So, yeah, some of the earliest things I can remember, getting hit and not knowing why, crying, um, wondering why, why someone that loved me would do that. And it turned around, it came around to bite me because... um I was always known as the guy that that would punch you out, you know. And but when later in life, when I stopped using the substances, it just got to where I. And then I met you in the mid nineties, in the mid two thousands. I felt completely helpless and completely
2: um, hopeless. I remember hopeless. you went back out and started, and I think you were you were smoking crack, right? That was your thing. That back That was then. my thing and you disappeared for a while and i remember all of a sudden you showed up again and you one of your front teeth had been knocked out yeah. and i just remember thinking that's not good <laughs> i don't know if i need to ask charlie how he's doing <laughs>
1: i remember that
2: how that tooth get knocked out
1: how that that's a funny story because at a crack house uh, i was wrapping up my rocks in a little piece of paper. Plastic, and if in this crack house, if you played with your rocks too much, you were they stole your drugs and threw you out. You're you were known as a tweaker, so if you started tweaking too much. They would like take your drugs and beat you up and throw you out. So I was wrapping it up in some plastic bag when when grocery bags used to be made out of it. I I would pull it with my teeth, and all of a sudden my it popped out my tooth. My front tooth went bouncing on the carpet, and everybody put their pipes down and looked at me and said, "Was that your tooth?" (laughs) I said. Yeah, and I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> 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 left. So that's the story about the tooth. And How
2: had your tooth become so loose? Was it a fake tooth? It at was that a fake
1: one? tooth. Yeah, it was. A- it was. It was it had a little post, yeah. and it was a cap with a little post into the root. Yeah. And I just pulled on it just right, and it snapped that post.
2: How had the tooth originally? My sister.
1: We were playing, and my sister took my head and just pushed it down on the table and cracked my tooth in half. Mm. Yeah, my sister was a. Uh, um, a very inspirational extraordinary person and who who could ex- inspire people and people name their babies after her she has so much passion my sister did in the 70s listening to all that great music of the 70s driving around in a vw smoking uh joints and my sister was extraordinary and passionate and inspired people and she was my hero because she was my older sister and i I would sneak into a room and listen to Derek and the Dominos and the Rolling Stones and ten years after and and James Taylor and all the and, and all the great bands of the seventies and she was my hero.
2: And, and do you remember why she put your face into the edge of a I table? I don't remember. She was playing and she was oh, so it wasn't like a no, it an wasn't active. a violent. Uh, okay, no, she was just playing
1: and just kind of pushed me. I don't know. She pushed me down. I don't know.
2: Is, is your sister no longer
1: alive? She, my sister, is dead. She's yeah. passed away and. That's been one of the hardest things ever because um, all of her passion that she had for life and for music, for everything, slowly, slowly slipped away. As As she descended into alcohol? uh, As she descended into alcohol and drugs, yeah. And then I knew that she was an addict, and she got in control of my mother's estate when my mother committed suicide. Her parents had um, had a considerable uh, estate. With uh, apartments, cash, uh, a nice house in San Clemente by the ocean, who who had uh... my mother's parents? Oh, I see. They came from Scotland and they and they opened a toy store. And so they had they had a nice they had a nice she had a nice inheritance. Well, she got herself in control of that money, and when she got in control of my mother's estate, she got power of attorney and the houses and the money and the stocks and everything. I went into a support group to get. Uh, some, some to get some relief from the way I was feeling because I was new. I was powerless. I couldn't. I could do nothing. You know. I, she got it all. I got so kind money. of
2: a co codependence uh, yeah.
1: themed support group. Yeah. Okay. It would give me some skills on how to deal with being powerless over somebody else mm-hmm. who is somebody else's addiction. And lo and behold, you know, she uh, ended up her boyfriend was a drug smuggler or something and and she somehow he attacked her and she got a huge settlement and she put that settlement money in with them all the estate money that she got from my mother and she had quite a bit and so she had a nice three-level house in Laguna Beach right across from PCH you know with an ocean view in Laguna which was so, and I was just staying in in a sober livings, you know bunk <laughs> beds and uh, and, I, and then I had an apartment a little one bedroom apartment and um I remember uh, your apartment yeah yeah uh
2: what how did you cope with the feelings of that? Because I remember you talking about it, yeah, but i want to hear uh i want to hear you share with the listener what that was like um having to uh deal with the powerlessness of somebody who had done that
1: yeah to you it was a sneaky thing you know and she knew what she was doing she was an addict and so she got in control of it all and got the house and and then moved her heroin dealer in as her boyfriend so he was just well that's just polite he was a heroin dealer I mean, so yes yeah, she moved you know, him in would be rude to he, leave him yeah so he was just he was just a leech he just used her and Together they shot heroin in that nice house in Laguna Beach, but it was it was really hard because I was powerless and she would she would try to help me here and there, you know, when I needed money or why and and going down to her house for Christmases and stuff, you know. Wow, her,
2: how hard was
1: that? Yeah, she had a really nice house with like a spiral staircase and a nice convertible in the driveway and 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 the dealer living there and and she was gaining weight because heroin is slows your metabolism down and so she was gaining weight and but she was really happy you know cuz she was blissfully you know high on heroin and
2: uh it was it was really hard really hard to how did she technically cut you out of the estate did she while your mom was alive did she get her to rewrite the will or what did she do um no when
1: my mother had Let's see. My mother was alive. My mother, my mother committed suicide. My Her parents um, begged my father, who was, a, who was an excellent businessman, begged him to help them with their estate, to help them organize it. And, and, it was, and he ignored – my father ignored them and had wanted nothing to do with my mother's parents to help them. So she – my grandmother put it into my uncle's name, who was my mother's brother, mm-hmm. who was not uh, – not sane. He he was a burned out old alcoholic who wasn't uh, in his right mind. Mm-hmm. And so my sister capitalized on that. She knew that some that Uncle Bob Bob mm-hmm. needed someone to take care of him. So she got power of attorney to take care of Bob who the money went to. So the money was actually Bob's, but she had access to it because she had a power of attorney, she was taking care of him. I see. So you know, her and Bob had that house and and, uh,
2: and how so, did your sister die?
1: Uh, my sister never got any help for uh, alcohol and drugs, and so my sister died a very slow death. Um, she went from the, uh, the three-level house in Laguna Beach to on the streets of Santa Ana. And one of the first things that happened—well, not one of the first things, but what, one of the things that happens to you when you're living on the streets is um, your health. And your teeth, because you're not brushing your teeth, you're not flossing, you're not eating the right foods to provide vitamins for dental support, and that's why homeless people have bad teeth because they're not eating right, they're not brushing and taking care of your teeth, and
2: and and especially if you're doing drugs that that kills the blood flow to your gums,
1: and so her teeth started to go, and uh, she would pop up in jail. I mean, she would, she would, she. Always told me when my uncle died that I would get uh, something, you know, a, a substantial amount of money. And when he died, she never let me know he died. I never got to go to his funeral. I don't even think he had a funeral. So uh, she disappeared. When, when she left that house, she went to another house and just disappeared. And then became homeless and lived on lived on the streets and doing heroin and crack and and so she was introduced to recovery programs and never it never never took with her it just bounced off she just didn't absorb it so I got to see what happens to someone who never gets in as versus, as opposed to me who gets in and has gone out a few times for a couple of months and got back I never gave myself any credit for coming back and forth but now that i've seen what happened to her i see what happens there is a huge difference in someone who gets in and and goes out and gets in and goes out than someone who never gets in because she never got in and she died a horrible death it was slow when someone dies of alcoholism no one is surprised because everyone knows what's going on with that person so she looked she was 57 and she looked 75 and her teeth were rotted out and brown and she got my dad to to pay for dentures so she got some dentures and she looked really really old and um thought that people were hacking into her phone and she was not in her right mind and i tried to get her into into halfway houses and stuff and she couldn't be anywhere for long without being asked to leave because she was mentally unstable and she would just rub people the wrong way and just she knew how to get under people's skin and so she she couldn't stay. They would have to ask her to leave and uh, I tried everything to get her the message and in the end she died alone and scared and unable to connect with anyone any of her old friends couldn't connect with them and not, nothing none of her old friends just alone and was living in my old bedroom with my father who my father's a recluse who actually works but Doesn't take care of his house. Doesn't have any food in the refrigerator. Doesn't lives in a lives in a broken down, dirty, disgusting house.
2: Which so what happened to him financially? I don't
1: know. He 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 owns a pool company and does fairly well. But he just he doesn't care about the house. He doesn't care about anything but pools and dating his girlfriend. Actually, just pools. He thinks my father fell into the trap of thinking that his what he does defines him. So owning this pool company gives him his identity. And so when I went back to, for my reunion in 2015, no 2010, for my 30-year reunion, I saw the house was uh, had had 2 inches of dust on the carpet and there was a little trail where he walked from the living room into the bedroom and there was it was dirt and filth all over the carpet. The the pool see this is the house that he had built when we were in, when I was in high school it was a It was a beautiful, wonderful house with a pool in the back and all this futuristic furniture and a barbecue and everything and The pool was brown water half full um the the house was a was a shambles, and he was eating t v dinners um sitting there alone in the quiet eating t v dinners alone by himself and um I went back any time I ever went back to see him, there was no food in the refrigerator and really no reason to come back because I, I hadn't seen him in years and I would, we would go out to breakfast the next morning and he would just put the paper up between us and read the paper and I would say, don't you want to know what, what's been going on with me? Don't you want to know me? And he really didn't, you know, he, he had no,
2: no interest in me actually. So I, I, I knew some of your story, but yeah. I didn't know the depths of the um, abandonment. Yeah. Uh, he didn't want to know me. And I hadn't seen him
1: in 10 years. I moved to L.A. He was still in. Um, then he let the house go. And he, I asked him, I said, how can you live in filth? He says, I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm, I'm perfectly happy. So I went back in 2010 for my 30-year reunion. That was seven years ago. And I actually cleaned up, mowed the yard, vacuumed up all the there – was, there was seriously two inches of dust and cleaned his kitchen and stuff and um and what did you feel when you went back and you saw all this um, and you were and walking around it's just a complete disconnect i mean here's a guy who who disconnected from me but he's also disconnected i mean who wants to live in filth i mean who who would who but would, what did you feel what did i feel a little empathy because this is not something new this is all my my him entire life it was he was disconnected from me and when you know when you're a little boy and your mother's sick and you're absolutely, you're struggling you you're, you're going to want to get on one knee and say what's going on with you son how are you doing and you know that was ne- that never happened you know so i felt empathy for him and just felt a complete disconnect did you feel anything towards yourself no, I'm I'm still working on that. I'm still working on processing um the things that happened as a little boy and as a as a teenager growing up without with a mother who was gone.
2: I mean, I but, can't just me hearing this story uh, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go through all of that yeah. shit. I mean it's.
1: Well the thing is I, I my mother suffered after when she got sick and, and when I was 9 she suffered she cried and cried and became catatonic and suffered and suffered and took all these drugs that made her just twist and writhe and none of them drugs did any good at all but I watched her suffer for for many years she finally bought a gun at Walmart and just lay down on the bed and shot herself and Uh, I mean, I understand that because... Where were you? uh, I was in the... I had actually done a stint in jail for a robbery and started to get my life together and started going to college. And I was studying in college and I was getting good grades and I was looking to take over my dad's pool company and, and things were looking up. You know, I had a girlfriend and I was i would i would i was still smoke in the pot, but I would smoke pot after I studied late mm-hmm. at night so i was it was in i was in community college and I was at the at the library studying doing making grades doing well you know my whole all my high school years were spent in a haze of drugs acid everything i mean, mm-hmm. I was so stoned in high school and junior mm-hmm. high, so now it's my time to shine so i was I had just done some time in jail and was turning myself around and my mother she just she got she just was tired of suffering, and I completely understand I completely understand she so said so. she got a shotgun she lay down she got a thirty eight pistol from Walmart okay. and loaded it and just laid down and, and shot herself and um, my sister found her, my sister called my girlfriend my girlfriend called me I went straight over there and we we both found her together and um, my sister had called me, and then she, my girlfriend and then she called a she called the, the police and so we were in there my mother had blown herself off the bed in between the bed and the nightstand and um I was trying to pick her up and put her back on the bed and there was quite a bit of um blood and brains on the wall and on the on the uh on the carpeting by the bed and I was trying to pick her up and put her back on the bed and the uh the the medical the the coroner who whatever he was a medical examiner guy Bear hugged me and pulled me out of the room, and I was so mad because I wanted to be with my mother. And he said, "Dead people have rights. You you can't. You got to let us do that." And he explained to me, and I'll never forget that. I wanted to be with my mom. I wanted to be the one to pick her up and put her back on the bed. But so my my way of helping was to scrape up, you know, some of the some of the brains and the and the skull matter and stuff off the carpet and, and try to put it in the trash and stuff. And my and my dad and and the no, no other police officer stopped me from doing that. You know, that was my way of trying to help. Um, but when my mother passed and she did that, uh, it just that threw me. It threw me big time. And I, you know, I drank and ended up moving to Huntington Beach with a lot of my buddies in Tulsa that were all
2: skaters. Be- before we move on to that, I, I just want to go back to um, that moment. And because I imagine the listener is probably feeling and thinking what I am right now, which is, holy fuck, holy fuck, that is a lot to process. Yeah. How, yeah. how, how
1: I think that's what... That well, that's what made me a, a complete anger and rage aholic is that because I, I never really processed it. I I drank and then, um, and you would have been how old at that? At I, that was time? 21. I was twenty one. I was twenty twenty one. Yeah, and
2: um, you hadn't smoked crack yet. Mm-mm.
1: No, I moved um, to Huntington Beach. I put everything in the back of a pickup, and moved to where my friends were living in Huntington Beach and stayed with them, and uh, and it was then that i got introduced to cocaine and back then it was you had to buy powder cocaine and, and you had to cook it up with either uh ammonia or um baking soda mm-hmm. and so the minute i tried that yeah but i, I keep thinking if my mother hadn't have done that i would still be in i would have been in college and i would have moved to a university and i would have gotten an education but I, i'm not placing any blame on her because i'm I know why she did what she did, because she suffered for 13 years, and a person can only take so much, and and there's no helping her. There was no helping her. She was a devout Jehovah's Witness, and she would spend so much time at the Kingdom Hall, and my dad would routinely have the elders of the congregation over to the house for them to explain what they were putting into her head, what they were telling her, what was going on with my mother. And he had... You know the, the the elders of the congregation there uh, regularly m- trying to hold them accountable for for the stuff that w- they were putting in her, to her head. She was trying to hold your dad accountable. No, he was. Trying, my dad was trying to hold the uh, I see the, the elders of the Jehovah's Witness congregation ag- accountable for what they were what the programming
2: they were giving her. For instance, what what was some of the programming? Well, that
1: that Armageddon was coming, and that unless we were Jehovah's Witnesses, we would not be in the new system. And so that, besides besides the, uh, the, the schizophrenia and the, uh, the, the terrible depression she suffered, um, then she also had the notion that we weren't going to be saved, that we were not going to be with her in the new system. And that added a whole other dimension of pain to her life. And um, she was convinced that we wouldn't be in the new system and, and that Armageddon was coming soon. And that's what the Hill's Witnesses teach. And so my dad, you know, would have them over and hold them accountable and say, "What are you telling her?" And what, you know, that's just what I remember. It's been 35 or 40 years, but that's, I remember that. And uh, But I got my first hit, uh, hit of free-based cocaine after she did that, and I was sp- I was just in a spin, spinning. And my first one, I was I was an addict for my first one. There was no. What
2: do you remember feeling or thinking with that first hit? This is this is. I found home. I found it. Yeah, this is it. I found it. You know,
1: and my girlfriend at the time, my beautiful girlfriend, who moved out to uh, Huntington Beach from Tulsa with with me, um, tried one to try to try to puff. You know, and then that was she tried it once. You know, and she would drink a little with me, but it wasn't soon after that she, she didn't like it. Well. She just didn't, didn't. yeah, she wasn't an addict. Like It didn't, didn't make her world go around, but she had to leave me. This woman was a woman that loved me, that, that came out from Tulsa with me to be with me, and she loved me. And she said, you're in my heart, but I have to leave you now. And I was known as the junkie. You know, no, Back then, people didn't really understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was support groups for that kind of affliction, but um, she had to leave me. And she still loved me, but she couldn't be with me, you know. Which, which was the healthiest thing that she could have Absolutely. done for both of you. Yeah. So, yeah, thus that, that started my uh, my love affair with uh, free-based cocaine. And that lasted 18 years. I mean, I
2: somehow... When did you jump over to crack?
1: Um, well, well, crack became... That was in... Uh, that was in 1989. 80, 88, 89, 89, 90. Yeah. Crack really swung in big time. And we went from cooking it up in 87 and 88. And another girl I was living with had to leave me because I was going to the clubs. We were drinking and I would bring home cocaine and cook it up and smoke it. And she said, you know, I can't be with you if you're going to keep doing this. And I kept doing this. And then she left me. So it was another girl.
2: Give me, how long typically would you be up on a cocaine run for? It was, it was funny in the, in the, not funny, but it was
1: peculiar or interesting. In the, in the 80s, my longest I would stay up would be one night. And then I would be coming down, um, and I could still make it to work. I would get high, and I would stay up all night and drink, and I would still be able to make it into work. And in 91, when I got into a support group for that, um, I got a couple of years clean and then went out and spent, then I would spend three days up with no food, no water, just drinking, um, excuse me, just smoking cocaine. And um, then from there, it escalated to five days up, six days up, seven days up, just smoking, no, not drinking water, very little water, no food, and smoking cigarettes and smoking cocaine and doing crazy sexual things and an alternate reality i have no idea how i how i survived because the human body needs a certain amount of water before you you dehydrate and die i maybe drank just enough to just enough so my heart didn't stop and of course i would experience dramatic weight loss as a bodybuilder and a guy who was really lean anyway i would i smoked away my body weight my muscle probably 10 or 11 or 12 times and started over sold my car for, for crack cocaine and started over with with nothing probably at least eight or nine or ten times where I'd get a bike and I would get into a halfway house ride a bike looking for a job get a job buy a cheap car drive a cheap car you know finally get another place I did that probably eight or nine or ten times where I smoked my whole life away all my guitars the car smoked the car smoked everything and went from 180 or 190 pounds looking great to 140. And um, I had it down. You know, the trick was that you had to give two weeks, let your heart rest. You couldn't work out after a crack run. But I, I remember being up for six days, seven days straight. I have no idea how I survived it. But my trick was let rest for two a week or two, don't exercise, just start mm-hmm. eating. And once I got clean and after, i think you should write a book after yeah, two pipe weeks to pump <laughs> yeah after two weeks yeah, yeah. then i could start working out yeah <clears throat> and my muscle memory within within four three to three or four weeks i had my body right back in top shape again right back so through. you
2: fooled yourself into thinking this isn't unmanageable i just need to come in from the storm
1: oh, god no I, I think i knew it was un, it was, man, yeah. it was man, unmanageable it's just <clears throat> i just i just somehow escaped death and there's been a number of things that have happened before i moved to california well i came back from california and brought my addiction with me and moved in with a girl named joni and she had to leave me because i wouldn't stop and uh, i didn't have any place to live so i lived with my grandmother my dad's mother who my, my grandfather had passed away and he was a he was a dean of the detroit school of law and he was a uh, heavy guy he worked with presidents and he was mm-hmm. he wrote books on law that are in libraries and he was he was quite a guy she he had passed away she was living alone and she had this pristine 1973 ford ltd two-door so these there was a very long heavy car with big long doors and you know what i'm talking about like mm-hmm. the kind you used to drive around in the streets of san francisco remember yep. that yeah and um it was a pristine this thing was just mint condition and here i was just shorts, no shoes, no shirt, drunk, had been drinking all day, driving down the freeway about 70 miles an hour to get a rock, because once i have been drinking, mm-hmm. need a rock, and had drifted over in, in the lane, and I was about four inches away from the car next to me. <clears throat> I looked over, <clears throat> and I jerked the car back, tore away from that car, started fishtailing, and fishtailing back and forth, and then ended up rolling the car at 70 miles an hour rolling. It rolled three four times and skidded to a stop upside down. And I was just, no seatbelt, no shoes, no shirt. You know, I could have, most people are thrown from the car. They, They get thrown out the window or they're crushed. I just stayed right in the middle, had a little cracked rib, had a laceration on my leg, and the car stopped upside down, caught fire. And I crawled out of the car upside down and crawled over to the side of the freeway. And there were about four or five lanes of headlights all just shining right on me in this burning car and me sitting on the side of the freeway. And the ambulance came, took me away. I never know what happened to my grandma's car. I guess it went to the to the impound and went, it was totaled. It was, it was burning. It was totaled. And went took me to the hospital, gave him a fake name, got stitched up. All I had was some stitches on you know, my leg. And why the fake
2: name? Because you were drunk?
1: And that and I didn't have insurance and I didn't know how to pay for it. And I gave him a fake name because they could have got me on DUI. And I remember my father coming to pick me up and he didn't say a word. He looked at me in disgust and he didn't say anything. My grandma's car was gone. I was calling those 976 numbers at her house, talking to girls on the phone, you know, sex talk and running up her phone bill. And my dad found that out and he said, you got to go. And so I was just, Useless. He he. Bought, he arranged for me to go to an apartment. I got this apartment. Um, went from job to job. Was was a this was I was I think I was twenty eight years old, and I became a sacker at the grocery store when I used to have. I was a sacker. Uh, I got fired because I was of my anger. I was at the payphone, slamming the receiver against the payphone. I broke the phone. Somebody that worked there saw me and reported me, and I got fired. I was a cook at Holiday Inn. Um, I quit that job New Year's Eve because I wanted to drink. Um, finally, my sister came back, and she had gotten the inheritance, and she had um, she came back and she flew me out to California. This was in 1990, and um it was just insanity because this was before the house the, in Laguna. Mm-hmm. She was living in these really nice places in Laguna with Uncle Bob, really high-end apartments and houses and townhomes, and. and um, Never gave me a key. I'd have to knock on the door to be let in and ended up throwing me out. <clears throat> and, uh, I went to, um, this place called, uh, Paradise by the Sea. It was a Laguna Beach run by a guy named Father Colin. And he was a, he was a father. And this is how I know I'm an addict. Can I say that? Mm-hmm. So I know I'm an addict because Father Colin had one thing and he said, you just can't, you can't get loaded. I'm going to drug test you. You're going to pee in a cup for me. And as long as you don't do drugs, you can stay here for free and you can eat. And it was right. It was right on PCH, right in Laguna Beach. And I could not stop. I went down from Paradise by the Sea, walked down to, to the to a Heisler Park in Laguna to Main Beach. Knew how to score cocaine in the bathroom at may be Scored a little $25 paper of cocaine, snorted it, went back to um, my little room at Father Collins' place, stared at the ceiling all night long, trying to, you know, hmm. come down and peeing in a cup the next day and getting kicked out. When when I, all I had to do was just not do coke, and so I could stay there. And that's all I know I'm an addict, because Father Colin, you know... And so, what happened to me was, was I met somebody at a cinco de Mayo party. It was a woman who was seven years older than me, and we were both been drinking, and uh, we c- hooked up, so to speak. And um, she lived in North Hollywood. Now, I'm I'm a beach guy. I live in I live in the beach. I skate and surf. And she lived in North Hollywood, and she drove me back to North Hollywood for that night, and we spent the night together. And I I just didn't never left. I moved right in. I became this installed boyfriend that's how i did things and so that's how i ended up coming to the valley from
2: there's really nothing in your life in moderation <laughs> i mean it is all or nothing <laughs> at least what you have described so far and obviously you know for us addicts yeah. that's pretty typical but yeah. oh my god share if you can because you're you're sharing a lot of the external stuff in a lot of the situations and while i do want to know that stuff i also want to know like internally what was going on with you then your thoughts your feelings oh, how you viewed horrible. yourself how you viewed the world it was horrible it was horrible. talk about that
1: i was i was in this apartment with the girl she had a two-bedroom apartment and um i was smoking crack when she was at work and i felt so low because I would knew that she was coming home at five o'clock or so and I would go drink some beer and, and, and sober up and, and just act like nothing happened. And just day after day after day like that, I felt, I felt just lower
2: than whale shit. You know, you are a Coke addict when you're like, I got to sober up. Where's the beer? <laughs> yeah. So she was okay with drinking
1: and she smoked a little pot and she was high functioning. She was, you know, successful. And so I would, have a few beers and pretend like nothing, nothing happened. And I was able to do that. And I hadn't yet had my, you know, two day runs. I would just do it when she was gone. Mm-hmm. And I, and the feelings I felt so worthless, feeling completely worthless, not working, not uh, contributing anything and using this woman for a place to live and a meal and smoking crack when she was gone. Um, what
2: were some of the things
1: that you told yourself? I told myself, um, that it's going to be okay. I'm going to get a job. And I ended up, I ended up joining the Navy.
2: Your story. Is, <laughs> I would hate to have to flowchart your story. I ended up joining There's the There's not Navy. enough markers in the world to flowchart your story.
1: <laughs> I ended up living with her joining the Navy. Yeah. And uh, that. if you want to hear about that, there was a whole story about that. But I felt so low about myself. That uh, I I had done some collection work as a collector, a phone collector, and I had gotten a job as a collector. It didn't last very long. I got in a fight with the with the the manager, and I got my check. and I was walking down the street, and I looked down the street, and I saw that looks like. A drug neighborhood. So I walked down there and it was, and I just got a rock and I went back, and that's how I, where I scored the rocks. I, I would have no car. I would ride the bus over to Blythe Street, Blythe and Van Nuys. There's a McDonald's there now, mm. but it used to be the Blythe Street gang. And you, you know, white guys didn't go in there. There was, there were murders. There was all kinds of, the Blythe Street gang was one of the biggest gangs in LA, but somehow they they didn't kill me. I, would, I walked in on a daily basis. I got off the bus. I'd walk in. I'd buy my rocks and I'd, I'd walk back out, and they, they just left me alone, and um, I felt lower than whale shit. I, I felt like there was no way I could
2: stop, and I didn't have anything to live for. So what? So what changed for you? What? What helped it turn around? I think, especially the, internally. The what? What helped? Just being. Uh,
1: being in the company of others with whom the problem had been solved—if it weren't support for, group people—if yeah, it weren't for others, yeah, because—but being as feeling as low as I felt, um, and and you know, seeing everyone else driving around in cars with jobs and no, and just getting ejected from the navy and and going back to crack—it uh, was extremely hard. Somehow I, I made it through and um, met the guy who was to give me a place to live and spoon fed me the right information. and Support group information. Yeah. Just healthy information, spirituality, and, and the correct way to think, you know, because my thinking was, was skewed. And this guy loved me he he loved me he he, sh- he showed me love where i never have ever experienced that cuz i had two parents that didn't know how to do that
2: can that, you can you be more specific about what the love looked like and felt like yeah. and what form it came in it was it was somebody not trying to make
1: me feel bad somebody because my father always pretended like he didn't like me he he loved me but he never let me know and i was scared of him mm-hmm. and so i remember i got bit by a spider on my back when I was in seventh grade and they came to pick me up. The whole family was in the pinto. And when I got in the car I was, I was sure I was going to get screamed at. And my father said you got a bad bite, huh? And I said, yeah, I had a bad bite. And I was just sure that he was going to just start in on me. So this, this love came in the form of, of, of being accepted as a human being and not, not being belittled constantly and not being hit anymore. And so he loved me and showed me what love was. And, uh, it was really cool because he was a music producer and me being a guitar player and stuff. I had, I think I had 15 years in as a guitar player at that time. And he had an artist that he was doing an album for that lived in a house in the back house. And I met this other guy who was, who was a genius. And he was now he lives in Nashville and he's he's a big thing he's a big big deal now, but he was a big deal then. But mm-hmm. uh, he was a staff writer at, at um, Warner Brothers Records and JC was or my friend JC was doing his album and I was in, and then I met him. Mm-hmm. And, I remember JC. Yeah, and JC and it was, uh, I, if I can say Phil Brown. Phil Brown is one of the greatest guitar players ever. Amazing, amazing yeah. guitar player. You know, you know him. Yeah, he's. Mm-hmm. If you look him up on Spotify, you can
2: hear him. Yeah, he and he uh, he played with uh, Little Feet. He's brilliant, and yeah. he, so they were doing
1: an album in the studio. But Phil was a master at recording himself, so he would he would do the we. It was back when the eight tracks. He bounced everything over to free up the tracks. He bounced it mm-hmm. over, and everything yep. was on cassette. And so he he influenced me, and when I, when, when I got two years clean, j c said it 's time for you to fly and do your thing, and it 's time for you to go and I, st- I had my own little studio and a little four track and did what Phil was doing, and learned how to do it, and bounce everything over and
2: it, you know so I learned how to do that and, and by the way uh, j c was the guy that wrote the song "Green Eyed Lady, right. Lovely Leboop"? He, he was that guy. One of the best basslines ever. One
1: of the best rock anthems ever, ever recorded. Yeah. This this will be on the on the greatest hits album of all time. It'll yeah. still be there. Yeah. Was it the
2: Ides of March? Who was the band? I can't remember. Um
1: It was Sugarloaf. Are you sure? Green Eyed Lady with Sugarloaf. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So J C wrote it with Jerry Corbetta from Sugarloaf, but J C okay. lived off that song basically. Yeah. But J C loved me, and that was the first time I'd experienced love and not
2: being belittled or hit or beaten. And uh, it sounds like he saw the real you and said, "You're enough." Yeah, he, he, you're loved lovable me. Yeah. as you
1: are. Cause he, he had this thing about, of birds. He loved birds. He had a parrot. He had this whole aviary with birds. He had chickens out on, out walking around. He did, he just loved birds. I didn't know anything about birds until I met JC, but he called me Charlie Bird. So I know he loved me because he loved birds and he called me Charlie Bird. Yeah. So, um, eventually my sister, if I may, she, mm-hmm. And my sister shows up and my wife had just left me mm-hmm. and I totaled my car and I just started this job as a telemarketer because I couldn't find a job because mm-hmm. I have tattoos and I have all those misdemeanor battery convictions mm-hmm. and um, I couldn't find a job so I was going to start I was starting as a telemarketer so I had to get up and be a telemarketer and I, I was so distraught and I was so... My nerves were just so raw that I couldn't let my sister stay. I I should have opened up my home because I did before. I got the call the next day from my dad that my sister had passed, and we weren't shocked. I mean, she was Mm. she. It was terrible. And go ahead. um, When somebody dies that way, they have they have to the state demands an autopsy. So my friend in the support group took me down to the coroner to get her car and her effects and to identify her and.
2: Um, and so you had to identify your yeah, sister,
1: but this was after the autopsy. And yeah. when you, when someone on the streets or in a motel or whatever, or someone has a drug addict has an, has a, uh, a drug related death and do an autopsy. Um, well, my experience is they treat you like a piece of meat. I mean, she was, you never, first of all, for anyone listening, you never want to see a loved one after an autopsy. You never want to just mm-hmm. don't do it and apparently they had laid her on her face and cut her open from the back because her nose was all smushed down on her face her nose wasn't the same and my sister always had these beautiful green eyes and i would always use that line when i was a younger man i would use that line you have pretty green eyes just like my sister mm-hmm. you know my sister had had great eyes and i wanted to see those eyes again you know and she was all wrapped up i couldn't touch her she was all cut up and and her nose was flat and and she hadn't been embalmed she was just Mm -hmm. after an autopsy she was just dead been dead for about five days and i opened one of her eyes to see those beautiful eyes and they were not the same they weren't they weren't the same anymore and i'll never forgive myself for that i should never have done that so i spent some time stop 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 right
2: there never forgive yourself for what
1: for for looking into her eyes, for opening her eyes, Charlie, that was a
2: beautiful moment. I wanted to see
1: them, and they were they were all spotted. That's, they were covered in spots.
2: Try, every person listening to this right now is thinking that is the sweetest gesture that you wanted to see your sister's eyes. Yeah, I wanted and to see her eyes. And how you could take that and turn and it against myself? Turn it yeah. against yourself. I mean, that was like the sweetest gesture. Well, you
1: know where I got that is from my dad because my dad s- said I should never have done that and I got what I deserved. He didn't say I got what I deserved, but, you know, I was I was really upset after that. And he said, I don't, I'm not surprised and, you know, you should never have done that. You shouldn't have even gone to see her. And, you know, he just shamed Fuck me. Fuck your dad. But, but Fuck your
2: dad for that. I mean, your dad sounds like a really sick guy. Well... I had
1: to I had to spend some time with her, you know, and so I did. And then she was all cut up and wrapped up, and I spent time with her. I spent time, and a song came out of it. I, I got this song out of it, but it was... I, I don't think I should have gone, because that's, that's the last image I have of my beautiful, extraordinary, uh, passionate sister who lost all her passion from the disease of alcoholism it all went and she was just existing and she had nothing and mm-hmm. it was it was extremely hard to
2: to to see that to see her like that Let, let's have the, the the next thing and i think we'll wrap up after after this the recovery from from rage yes
1: yeah let's yes. go there um, I was hopeless and can I say that our interaction together? Yeah, yeah. yeah I was hopeless and you had sent me to your doctor mm-hmm. who got me on some medication. My psychiatrist. That yeah. helped me, that helped me sleep. It actually helped my life, but I continued to act out and I continued to rack up battery charges. I had, I have, I have six battery convictions. They're all misdemeanors. And um, that's not counting the ones I got out of, because I, I learned how to get out of them. I, I knew how to get out of them. And I had one where my girlfriend, she was sober. Mm-hmm. She gave me up to the police and said, well, I have to be honest in all my affairs, and so I gave mm-hmm. you the police your name and number. <laughs> so they were calling but, me. But but it wasn't her who you had. No, it wasn't no. her. It was, okay. We were just at a concert, and somebody okay. got in my face and stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, where was I? Oh, the, the, the recovery from rage. Yeah. Um, I was hopeless and you had helped me and I continued to rack up batteries. And the uh, what saved me, this is what saved this is what turned it around for me, is moving in with somebody, an alcoholic woman who was being racked by the disease through uh, eating disorder, through spending disorder, through uh, opiate disorder. She would spend money on things that she had no business buying so many pairs of shoes so many shirts you i could just see that she was and her mother was paying off the credit card. so she was just in this codependent thing and she was buying stuff that she had no business buying she had so much of everything it was just a pure addiction but this woman would say things to me just to hurt me and she would she would say things to hurt me cuz she was that's what she does she hurts the people that she loves and it used to i used to uh, freak out and like throw bottles into the TV sets and grab a television and throw it across the room and grab her and shake her up and, and pull her hair and, and I used to do things just to get back at her for being so mean and after I got out of jail when, when I went to the jail for domestic violence I realized that we, we moved back in together and she continued to try to hurt me because that's what she does but this was she was just a roommate to you no right? we were back together we were back together, oh, husband the, and wife.
2: The, oh, the woman, the coma.
1: Yeah. Wife. The we were, coma I, wife. The coma wife. Yeah. I had a, I had a domestic violence and I, the, grabbed, she's the one you push through the door. She's the one I pushed through the door bumped and she her bumped head. her head on yeah. the way out. And, mm. um, and so, uh, but I, being married to an addict that would do anything to hurt me is what, is what made me grow up because I finally grew up and I finally realized that this person is saying these things and it's not about me. She's saying these things, and it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with her and and her evil mother that she still was using for support and had a huge, t- terrible enmeshment with. You know, she should have been broken free from that, but she had an enmeshment with this terrible mother who mm-hmm. and and she would say anything to hurt me. And who, I just couldn't. It was just so over the top that I realized that this that she was saying things to me to hurt me and it was nothing to do with me at all. Nothing. It had all to do with her. Oh. So I learned how to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm gonna go over here now. And I would I, I just stopped reacting. I stopped uh yelling. I stopped everything and I just Stopped. I just stopped. Where did you learn that? I learned that while I was living there with her when she was trying to say mean, evil things. And she ignored me. Not only. But, she, but who had taught you
2: this? Or did I, you just I, pick it up on I your own? I picked it up. I picked wow, it up on my own. That's a big I said, leap. I
1: said, me, me going against her and yelling back at her and throwing things at her and, and breaking TVs isn't, isn't helping. I've got to find something well, else. It
2: depends on what was on TV. <laughs> it,
1: it wasn't helping. Okay. So I, I devised it this thing, I said, look, I've just got to realize that it's not about me. I've got to stop reacting. I've got to let it go because it's not about me. It's about her. It's her opinion. And she will say anything to hurt me. I had the CD of me speaking and I was a good speaker. Mm -hmm. And then she threw it at me and said, you're not a good, you're not any kind of speaker. You're. She just would do anything to hurt me. Mm -hmm. So I realized it's not about me. And what I did with that is I transferred that out into into the real, into the world. And I realized that the guy that was tailgating me, who I used to, I used to have a system. When someone tailgated me, I would slow down. They would try to go around me. I would move over so they couldn't go around me. And that would just freak them out. And then they would get so angry that we'd pull over and I would get out and I would bang on the window or they would get out. We have a, we have a fist fight, but I transferred that. It's not about me to driving to the guy who's tailgating me. He doesn't know me. It isn't personal. Exactly. It's not personal. So I learned to not even, I had a world of road rage. I had nothing but road rage. I learned just to let it go and to not even look at them when they drove, when they passed me. Cause if I'm, if I'm, I'm going to keep going to speed them, but they want to tailgate I they eventually go around you. And, and I, I learned not to give them the look. I learned not to give them the finger. Yep. I learned it's not about me. It's not. And so I, I take that into the world. And whenever somebody does something to me, because I treat everyone with respect now and I, and I, I keep my side of the street clean. I treat everybody with respect. I treat everybody nicely. If someone doesn't like me and has a problem with me, I know it's not about me. It's their opinion. It's not about me. So I've, I turned that whole world of rage around and now I find strength. And this is going to sound corny, but I find strength. In being patient, I find strength in knowing when to say I'm sorry when, when I'm wrong. And I find strength in being able to, uh, to forgive other people. And the forgiveness is the hardest one because forgiving, we can forgive for a minute, but then we want to take it back and not like that person mm-hmm. uh, again. So the forgiving is, being forgiving is hard. But it's in, it's in, it's in a book I read that says, though people who offend us may be spiritually sick, though we don't like their symptoms, they like us. perhaps possibly spiritually sick so Mm -hmm. i I took that into the world the driving is completely a whole new thing for me Mm -hmm. because it's not about me they don't know me it's not personal so here was this guy he didn't want to stop he didn't see me so he almost hits me so i i I get by and he stops just enough to let me by and then he guns it right right behind me and then i uh, my mistake was I, i went to old behavior and i looked back i gave him the look I look, I should have just ignored it, but it was such a close call that I looked back and I gave him that stink eye look Mm -hmm. and he said, he said, you got something to say. And then he kept going and I, I stopped the bike and I I did something that I don't do anymore. And I, I slipped up and this is, this is a mistake. I said, well, maybe I have something to say to this guy. (laughs) I mean, I didn't want to hit him, but I, I I wanted to be right. It was that need to be right. Which I've learned not to do. It's a state of insanity. I want to be yeah. right. You wanted to change him. Uh, I, yeah, or to let him know. Yeah. yeah. So I, I said, maybe I have something to say. So I, 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 rode my bike where he went and I found his car and he had pulled over in front of the, uh, Dry cleaners. And his father got out. And so I pulled up and I said, hey, remember me? And his father got out of the car and came around with a handful of shirts and clothes to be dry cleaned. And he said, I'm the father. What's, what's wrong? And I said, well, wait a minute. You're not the one behind the wheel. He is. And he said, no, I'm the father. Meanwhile, the driver is this 23-year-old guy unshaven and going berserk. Going berserk, screaming, yelling, calling me every name in the book, saying he's going to get a baseball bat out of the, out of the thing to get out of his face, get out of his face. I was about 20 feet away from him. Mm -hmm. Get out of my face, get out of my face. I'm going to get a baseball bat. And he was just screaming and yelling. And and the father was saying, I'm the father. I'm going to, I'm going to handle this. And I said, I leaned into the father and I said, how did he get that way? This is the God's honest truth. I looked at the father because the father was obviously taking responsibility for this Mm -hmm. kid. He said, he said, i said how did he get that way and he said he just came back from Afghanistan. he's been killing people and he thinks he's a killer he can't get over it and um the 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 guy gunned it and just took off and the father was i was standing there with the father with the dry cleaning clothes and he said oh no he's going to leave me and what happened was he, he went down the way and he turned and he's parked and i looked at the father and i said god bless god bless and I got on my bike and I rode, and as I passed the car, I didn't stop to, to apologize. I didn't stop to say anything to this kid. There was, there was nothing I could do for this this person. There's nothing I could do. I'm sorry what it just, I don't know, but I just kept writing. And that was my last mistake. And it was. it's been a long time since I've done that, since I've taken anything personal. Yeah. Because being on the bike, you know, people don't want to stop for you. And I've, I've, I forgive people all the time. You have to forgive. And I see people, they're going through the crosswalk. They get all upset because mm. cars don't want to stop. And they give them the finger and they start yelling. And I've talked to people in the crosswalk. I said, look, you just got to let it go. You can't let, let it, it go. You can't let it bother and you. And you were able to have empathy
2: for that kid. Yeah. Who I assume you have empathy for that. I, I did. For he, that kid. He was
1: going through one of the worst cases of post-traumatic stress syndrome I had ever seen. And so that was my last you know, last mistake, but it was a big one. And I've just learned not to take things personal. And, and what it took for me, I grew up and now I'm able to have adult conversations with people about things and, and stay adult. And you would not believe how many people are unable to do that. I was working in a in a nice big company with a with a manager who I want I want to tried to have those adult conversations and he wouldn't he could, he would just go straight to ranting he would just go straight to um to raising his voice cutting me off talking over me and I said but wait a minute I'm trying to have an adult conversation he says no you're not you're you I'm sick of arguing with you I said I'm not arguing I'm standing here calm. And trying to have an adult conversation. So I've learned to have those adult conversations where you keep, keep your tone down. You have an adult. Don't escalate. No, you don't escalate. You say the things you want to say in a non hurtful manner where nobody gets upset. You would not believe how many
2: people can't do that. It just fries their brain. And, and the great thing is, is that you're not the person doing that anymore. And I'm not You're the not person that doing person,
1: that. I, I finally, I don't know how, it, but I think it was being married to somebody who was that sick and that eaten up by the disease of addiction, seeing her try to hurt me so many times and the length that she would go just to hurt me for no reason mm-hmm. because she was hurting. So I, I finally grew up and and now I wouldn't think of putting my hands on anybody. It wouldn't cross my mind. Mm-hmm. And I hit the heavy bag. I do boxing. I, I, I hit the bag. I, I've got, you know, I know how to fight, but... i would never even think about doing that to somebody because i finally grew up it finally happened
2: you know buddy thank you so much for uh sharing your story being my friend thank you uh, for all you've done for me you're somebody that from day one
1: uh was into service work and helping people from the start of when i met you and i have seen you before get completely vulnerable and have no self-pity whatsoever and be completely in the solution. And that is a shining example for the people around you who are suffering from the same malady.
2: Let's wrap this up before you you start listing the bad things about me. (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) No, but thank you for all you've done. Too,
1: I love you, Charlie. I love you, too.
2: What a sweet, sweet man. Um, Before I forget, uh, I want to mention this episode will soon be transcribed and available on our website. Many thanks to Accurate Secretarial for donating their time and helping out the show by doing that. Uh, Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Because posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites, and now you can. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter's handy website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post it once and watch your qualified candidates roll in ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There's no more juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you run into any issues, Don't worry about it, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash first. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash first. One more time, let's do it the third, ZipRecruiter.com slash first. I got an email from somebody uh, that brought up a really interesting topic and It was, how do you know when something is your issue or the other person is really being annoying? And I'm paraphrasing, but that was essentially, you know, wanting to know whether or not your resentment is justified. And I wrote back and I said, um, I don't think the other person, um, their flaws need to... uh, be figured into your resentment. You know, just just because someone is flawed doesn't mean it's healthy to hang on to that resentment because um, it's not about determining necessarily who's right uh, as much as it is about letting go of the negative emotions. Um, you know, that's not to say that you shouldn't say, hey, you know, what was the appropriate thing that was done by you or to you? Um, but for me, the real thing to, to try to get out of examining something is what feelings were brought up in me by this conflict or (laughs) passive aggression or what, whatever it is. And for me, what I usually look to get from it is clarity on Seeing something in them that I also have in me, and that helps me have compassion for them, because I can't judge somebody when I truly know I share the same flaw that they do, um, and that for me releases the the anger, because uh, then I'm I'm reminded of how many people gave me a a, a wide berth when I was stepping all over people's toes and just oblivious to how selfish um, and hurtful I could be. Uh, you know, it's really, it's really about getting to what the fear is underneath the situation. Because when I'm scared, man, that's when my flaws flare up. And it's usually just like the person I'm resenting. And there's a saying in support groups that if you spot it, you got it. Now, that's not true all of the time, but for me, about 90% of the time, If I really break it down, what I am hating on somebody for is almost always something that I hate about myself. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to go ahead and be a doormat, but tempering it with some degree of compassion for that other person helps me deal with the situation with moderation, diplomacy, and timing. Timing is huge. Sometimes waiting till the next day to say something can make all the difference in the world. So, I hope that made sense. And if it didn't, you know what you're free to do. You know where to go do it. And you know which finger to do it with. This is a happy moment filled out by Will. And he writes, I love love ones like this because they're so subtle. And Will writes... uh, Raking the leaves in late November, it was a clear afternoon and everything had a sort of glow about it. I'd spent most of the day watching Portishead music videos and having discovered their music the night before. This was from years ago, he writes. Um, I felt like a lot of my discontent from the past year had just lifted off me and everything felt really clear and beautiful. Words can't really explain it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I uh, I love moments like that. And, and and then part of you is like, why does this feel so good? Why is this, why do I feel better here raking leaves in my backyard than I did graduating high school? it. it there seems to be no rhyme or reason. I think the answer is because you're not surrounded by a bunch of assholes when you're raking your leaves. That was mean DJ popping in mean DJ voice turning everything negative. This is a shame and secrets survey um, filled out by a woman who calls herself, call me anything. And she is bisexual in her thirties, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes, yes, and I never reported it. Uh, She writes, my mother had no sexual boundaries. She often walked around in quote, long t-shirts with no underwear. Every time she bent over, uh, or reach for something, her unshaven bush would be visible. Uh, she would also make excuses to be in the bathroom at the same time as you. She seemed to like watching people use the toilet and would also take. Uh, the occasional peek at you in the shower. She liked us watching her nude and using the toilet as well. She would use everything from, I'm just putting towels away to, I just needed to ask you a quick question. She couldn't ever explain why she couldn't wait until she was finished using the bathroom to speak to us or why the towel would sit folded on the downstairs table all day and just needed to be put away at the very moment that someone was getting into the shower. When my brother and I were old enough to start locking the bathroom doors, we did. This led to many yelling fights for a week and the threat to remove the doors of the bathrooms if we continued to lock them. That is so fucked up. That makes my blood boil. And by the way, this is so common. And most people don't even realize it. Their body registers it. They feel angry and disgusted and unsafe when it's happening but we have been this is a this is a thing that is common and i know so many people after i started sharing about the things that happened to me and this is textbook when when mothers incest their children this is the most common way that it takes place and yes this is incest if you talk to any mental health professional who understands sexual abuse. You don't have to touch your children to sexually abuse them. And this is the classic way of, of mothers doing it. And dads do it too. Um, but it, it's usually, it, it gets onto somebody's radar a little more when it's a dad um, because we don't think of mothers as being capable of doing this. Um, continuing. Um, my father finally intervened, simply saying, there is no longer a rational reason for you to be going into the bathroom when they are using it. If the kids want to lock the door, they should have that right. God bless your dad. Her response was, well, who are they afraid is going to be walking in on them? Huh? Me? It's not like there is anything I haven't seen before. That's exactly what my mom used to say. We continued to lock the bathroom door. The walking around flashing her bush continues to this day. I'm 36. As an adult, I refuse to enter the house until she puts pants on. I also refuse to sit on anything in the house, and I don't eat there. You just can't get comfortable. When it is feasible, your mom's pubes can literally be anywhere on anything. I, I would laugh if that wasn't so fucking sad um, because this kills children's souls. Well, I shouldn't say kills. It wounds them deeply. This, This affects their ability to trust, to be intimate with somebody. And you know, I don't hate those moms or those dads that do that. I hate what they do. And I I don't know how many of them are conscious of what they're doing. I'd see them as sick. And it's really heartening to see that your dad st- st- stood in there and, and advocated for you, you know? That and it's so awesome that you have set a boundary that you won't enter the house if she doesn't have pants on. That is, that's huge. That's huge. And if the person who is uh, reading this wants to be connected, uh, who filled this out, wants to be connected um, to some support I know of around this issue, um, contact me. And I... We'll talk to you more about it. Or somebody hearing this read is, and is like, oh my God, that is my story. Um, contact me through the website. To the question, have you been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, yes, to both. My mother is an untreated borderline. When my brother and I were younger, she would make up imaginary offenses that, were, that we were to be punished for. She didn't believe in timeouts. She would categorize her parenting style as strict, but I have come to learn That is code for I beat my children. At the age of nine, my mother was in a rage and needed to get it out. Hitting us was the way she would relieve her aggression. She started to attack my seven-year-old brother. As she closed in on him, he started screaming at me to help him. I went a little mad. I jumped on her back and started to beat the hell out of her. I knew she was going to kill me, but the sense of panic and fear his screaming put me in. I think I reacted like a trapped animal. I was so terrified of what i had done i wet myself after my attack on her she seemed shocked and very hurt physically i think i scared her she realized i had become physically stronger than her my mother is under five feet and a hundred pounds she didn't hit my brother or me after that but the emotional abuse continued until we moved out i have read so many surveys in the five plus years i've had these on the website where a, a parent is almost like snapped out of a a state when, when a child fights back um, and it never happens again. And I'm not giving any kind of advice here to anybody. It's more of an observation that it almost seems like it's waking them, it's waking that person from some, almost like a dream state, where where th- that they go into like a blackout, like an anger blackout. Um, I-, I would love to see somebody do some research uh, on that because it's also interesting that then your mother continued to emotionally abuse you. And um, anyway, any positive experiences with the abusers? No, she has never shown me love, support, or kindness. I can't even recall a single memory of a good moment. Uh, darkest thoughts, killing her. I'm not ashamed of it. I think it's appropriate for the way I was treated and raised by her. I don't get a lot of understanding from people. Most people love and respect their mothers. Uh, darkest secrets. I was crazy into BDSM until I had a therapist who told me it was common. Uh, quote, most people fetishize their abuse. This crossed my fetish with my mother in my head. Now, when I try to fantasize about my fetish, my mother pops into my head and I go numb. It has killed my fetish and cured me of my mid-afternoon jack-off sessions. Darkest secret, when I'm jacking off, thoughts of my mother pop into my head. Normal or not, this is not okay with me. It's very triggering at a time when I'm supposed to be enjoying myself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, the standard BDSM scenarios, uh, being dominated by a male or dominating a female. I also fantasize about laying naked in an empty, grassy meadow with my partner, just laying in each other's arms, watching the clouds, and just being. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? It's small, but I would like to give people small compliments if I could, like, your hair looks great, or I love your shoes. It's small, I know. How sometimes a small compliment is the only thing getting you through the day. I would like to do that for people. Well, I wonder if you—it's not clear from this if you have and if you haven't. I highly encourage you to do it because sometimes something little like that can also make my day if I'm the person that that gives the compliment because it reminds me that I am connected to other people. I do matter. And I can be a vehicle for for love and goodness in, in the universe. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? To have been able to protect my brother better. If we are speaking presently, I would like to become whole. I would like to glue the pieces of me together so I can be a whole, healed person. I really hope you contact me because I have some good uh resources to suggest, um, especially the book, uh, Silently Seduced, by um, why am I blanking on his name Um, I was just talking with somebody uh, about it today but it's it's a fantastic it's a fantastic book I'm hearing great things about the book um, Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller have you shared these things with others yes my partner therapist and psychiatrist know all of it I've shared in my thoughts and feelings uh, to my mother She was a little surprised that my hate for her was so complete and raw uh, because she forgave her parents for their abuse and she had it a lot worse than I did. Uh, That's interesting that you shared it with your your mom, but you didn't really say how she reacted to it. uh, Or maybe I didn't glean it from this. How do you feel after writing these things down? It was uh, triggering. I still hold a lot of hate for my mother. I know she is ill. The thing I can forgive her for is she knew it and knows it. She. All, I wonder if she meant can't forgive her for. Um, uh, she also has the means to get help. She doesn't want to um, because she slash we are not worth it. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You can fix them, take it back, or make it right. You can only... I think, again, she meant to type can't. uh, You can't fix them, take it back, or make it right. You can only keep yourself safe and give yourself time to heal. Any comments um, to make the podcast better? I debated whether or not to read this because it touched me so much. And I figure with all the beating up I do of myself uh, on the podcast, it would uh, be nice to show that I can also take positive things in. And, but I'm, of course, the part of me that is so worried of appearing um, full of myself. Uh, I debate whether or not to, when people compliment me in the surveys or in emails, A lot of times I won't read that aloud, but every once in a while, I like to. And she wrote, uh, you rock, Paul. Keep it up. I would like to send you a thank you. I fall into the serial killer slash murder documentaries when I'm down. I was looking for more audio material when I came across your podcast. After following you for a few months, I believed I would benefit from therapy. I'm a few years in. I've had great success with managing my PTSD and have been diagnosed with hypomania. I've been on meds for a year and haven't been more stable and happy in my life. I know you get thank yous and you've changed my life, but think of this. I am an unknown random person in the world who heard your voice one day and it completely altered the path my life was on. that is such um like when i'm having a really shitty day and i i read something like that it it helps snap me out of for one it feels good but two it snaps me out of the sickness in my head which convinces me it's, this is all about you. You're cut off from everybody. And that's one of the biggest lies our brains make us think is that we are this island trying to survive and, and we're not. I was at my support group tonight and my favorite support group and, um, somebody posed the question, what brought you here? You know, what was the final straw that brought you here? And when it came to me, I said, I knew that I was going to kill myself if I didn't. And I didn't want to come. But there was a part of me that knew I had more purpose in my life. And I didn't want to throw that away. And I didn't want my last minutes on earth to be filled with shame. And and I also shared that if I were to die tomorrow and was able to express any thoughts before it, knowing what was coming, A, after everybody had cleaned up the feces, I'd give them a nice hug, thank them for cleaning up the feces. But in all seriousness, yes, I would be scared, but I think I would feel peace about what I had done with my life. I, I would have wished that I would have started it sooner. But, you know, we, I, I wasn't ready to see how much of an asshole I was and how selfish I was. And I couldn't see the abuse that was going on around me and the abuse that I was raised in. But if I hadn't gotten to the point that I knew I was going to kill myself and I didn't want to throw my life away, I wouldn't have gotten help. And if I hadn't gotten help, I wouldn't have been able to do this podcast. And if I hadn't been able to do this podcast, she wouldn't have been able to hear it. And She might have gotten to therapy eventually. But to me, that just shows how interconnected we all are. It's just on a scale that we can't readily see. So we forget. I forget. Maybe I should just speak for myself. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Am I Helping?, And she writes, I couldn't decide if this would go in this category or the struggle in a sentence one. I'm a senior in high school and every senior at my school has to do a big project on whatever they want. I have in the past dealt with the basic high school starter pack, (laughs) anxiety, depression, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. I wonder if there's a patch for that. So I thought of focusing my project on mental health. I had to interview a lot of people face-to-face for this project on their personal struggles. One of the people I talked to was a friend of mine. She was trying to say why she began cutting and was responding to the question, why don't you just stop hurting yourself? She said, it's not like you just stop it's got a fucking futon in your mind it'll sometimes just come walk in fold it down and spend the night you just have to deal at that moment we were both laughing at the metaphor at the metaphor she used about the dark topic of self-mutilation but i couldn't relate to her more thank you for that that's beautiful um that's kind of really this podcast it in, in boiled down into a sentence. And uh, finally, this is a happy moment filled out by um, a non-binary person who refers to themselves as, uh, or themselves, as Hurricane Kitten Surprise. And they are 16. And they write... My family is hella stressed right now. My dad just quit his job and money is getting tighter. He's been gambling several nights a week lately. I've stopped asking where he's going. I haven't had a meaningful conversation with my parents or siblings in years. I don't feel like a functional part of the family unit. I'm not out to my parents and I feel incredibly ostracized at times. So, understandably, I get tremendous anxiety when I found out that my dad and I would be traveling alone for three days during spring break. In particular, during the second night of vacation, my father took me out for a nice dinner and said he wanted to tell me something. I braced myself for the worst. He knew I was queer. He was getting divorced. He had a gambling addiction. The answer was nothing I could have predicted. He said he'd been dealing poker every week in order to set aside money for me to go to therapy, if and when I needed it. Although I just replied with a quiet thank you, in my head I was forgiving him for every late night snarky comment and angry insult we had exchanged in the past year. We may not be perfectly functional, but we know how to love. I may not be perfectly whole, but I'm not wholly broken. Thank you so much for that. That... What I love about that, too, is it's such a realistic portrayal of what getting healthier looks like in a family. It's never on the timetable we want. It never takes the form we predict. And so much of it is just about trying to be in the moment and be diplomatic without being a doormat and sometimes that's so hard but um what a lovely lovely moment i appreciate that um i hope you heard something in our episode that uh stuck with you i hope uh i hope you heard something that brought you comfort um i hope you liked hearing Charlie tell his story as much as I did. Like might be a weird word because some of it was so painful. And um, But my God, what what a spirit that guy has. And, you know, as I always like to say, I hope that if you're sitting out there listening and you think you're alone, you've realized that you're not. And that there's hope because help is all around us. We just have to reach out and ask for it. And I'm so grateful that I did because now I have you people in my life. And uh, it it really makes my life beautiful. It really does. And I never thought I would hear those words coming out of my mouth. And um, thanks for listening.